And I can guarantee you that, uh, you know, the Democratic caucus, that's one of their top priorities is figuring out how to continue to make Virginia a place that, you know, as as Delegate Lopez says, lifts everybody up and leaves nobody behind. Hi, this is David Goodfriend, and you're listening to the Goodfriend Group podcast. President Harry Truman used to say, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. But in this case, if you want a good friend in Washington, you've come to the right place. I talk to people from technology, telecommunications, and media. These are my good friends, and now they're here to talk to you. Welcome to another episode of the Good Friend Group podcast. You probably have noticed the distinct voice of David Goodfriend is absent. That's because today we're emphasizing the group part of our title. I'm Brian Hess, and today I get to step behind the mic with my good friend, Kevin Salcedo Broach, who is the Chief of Staff to Virginia House of Delegates Majority Whip, Alfonso Lopez. Kevin, how are you today? I'm doing great, Brian. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, well, we appreciate you coming on, especially the day after a pretty big primary victory. How'd that feel? It feels very good. <laughs> it feels very good. You know, we, we put a lot of uh, work and effort into that. Um, you know, I'll, Delegate Lopez does not uh, uh, take any any election for granted whatsoever. This this seat belongs to the district. It belongs to the people. And so it's always great to have an opportunity to get out and actually, you know, talk with people, chat with people. And it's it's great that all of that work uh, paid off in a, in a big way. That's great. You know, Delegate Lopez has been named one of the most progressive lawmakers in the Commonwealth of Virginia year in, year out. Uh, and for much of that time, you've been right there with him. Uh, how does it feel to be really on the front lines of the progressive movement in Virginia, uh, especially you know, considering Virginia is part of the South? And to have a progressive champion in the South mm-hmm. is something that I don't think many advocates like ourselves had thought was going to happen anytime soon, at least in my lifetime as a lifelong Virginian. Tell me, how does it feel to be making that fight every day? I mean, gosh, it's it, you really do get the sense that you're at the crux of history. You know, I mean, everybody knows Virginia's history in 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 the context of the United States. Right. I mean, this this state, this commonwealth has not always been at the um, at the vanguard of progress and at the vanguard of, of um, equality and justice. And so to, to have the opportunity to be working here and, and doing this work um, at the beginning of what I hope is, is a real progressive shift in Virginia's history. Um, it's, it's really breathtaking actually, you know, and, and Alfonso Delegate Lopez has been, he's been in the legislature for 10 years uh, or going on 10 years at this point. Um, and when he first got there, you know, he was Arlington Alfonso. He was the, you know, the, the, the leftist from, from <laughs> the DC area uh, who the Republicans just, uh, you know, kind of kind of waved away as as the big liberal voice, the one Latino in the legislature, you know, uh, willing to kind of stick his neck out on certain things. But um, and so to go from that to go from from the position that he was in when he first got elected, where Republicans were in control of of super majorities in the General Assembly um, and where they had the Republican or excuse me, when they had a, a, a governor who was a Republican. Uh, to go from that to uh, Democrats winning serious majorities in the General Assembly in the span of just a few years, consistent wins for for Democratic governors, 
Um, and then most importantly, really, really being able to pass a raft of seriously progressive legislation. Um, that's, it's breathtaking. It really, really is. And it, it gives me a lot of hope for um, the potential for the rest of the country. Because the way I see it is if Virginia can do this, if Virginia can get to this point, um, then there's no reason in the world that any of the other states in this country can't, can't do so as well with a little yes. bit of work and effort. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A little bit of work and effort there, but let's, let's talk about some of that rap that you were talking about. Cause in the last session, which was one, a weird session uh, with COVID <laughs> and also Virginia yeah. does the weird uh, short sessions and uh, odd years. And you only have 45 days and the things that you guys got done ending the death penalty, legalizing marijuana, Mm -hmm. providing equity and financial aid for undocumented students, expanding access to telehealth, expanding access to high-speed internet, and creating what is probably the first of its kind LGBTQ plus advisory board. I mean, this is just a fraction of everything y'all accomplished uh, during yeah. this last session. Uh, but let's let's dive into a couple of these things here. And I want to start mostly because my audience are largely tech wonks here in the Beltway. And uh What's been going on? How are we expanding uh, access to internet? Can you tell me more about the pilot program you guys created? Yeah, well, so th this is really about expanding an existing pilot program um, that uh, has existed for a few years. Delegate uh, Ayala, who is actually our newly nominated uh, uh, candidate for lieutenant governor, uh, she introduced this bill in the 2021 special session. Uh, there was also a, a, a Senate component. Um, and what it really does is expands that existing pilot program to include um, governmental internet service providers. Um, it kind of boggles the mind that they were not previously included in this program. Um, you know, I have family that lives in parts of Virginia um, where it is a lot harder to get, get internet access or at least cheap internet access from um, some of the big names that offer it. And so they get their internet service from from like the the Pembroke telephone company, you know? Um, and uh, and so expanding this program to allow those government um, uh, operators will, uh, you know, create a lot more opportunity um, to expand that access to people who simply can't afford it. That's great. I and mean, with that expansion too, telehealth is going to follow. And, you know, especially yes. again, you know, COVID showed how important telehealth is going to be moving forward. And, you know, there's a lot of push at the federal level to extend some of those waivers that were given. And, you know, so Virginia is working to extend telehealth as well, especially, you know, how are we going to reach those uh, rural and low income communities with telehealth? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, everyone has seen during the COVID pandemic, how our world has shifted. Um, there's no doubt that moving forward, um, having that sort of remote access to medical care, medical conversations with your doctors, with nurses, um, and then being able to actually conduct, uh, you know, prescriptions and, and those sorts of things over, over um, virtual services or phone services, they're going to be critical to being able to provide that kind of access to, um, to the communities that we know do not have nearly, nearly, nearly the access to, to health care and health coverage um, services that they should be getting. So this is this is something that I was really glad to see the General Assembly acting on. Uh, Delegate Don Adams uh, introduced this bill. Um, and, uh, and it, you know, it does exactly that. It, it makes it clear that um, that those services are completely authorized, that they're 
able to function. I mean, it's, it's, you know, one of those things where we needed to update the laws. Um, and that's part of what the legislature does, right, is as our society grows and changes and develops these new technologies and these new ways to, uh, to provide services to people, you know, they have to adapt. And, you know, there's no doubt that, that the COVID pandemic was one of those circumstances that I think um, really, really convinced people that there was an urgency here, you know, that, um, that definitely existed before, but that had just ballooned <laughs> completely. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, uh, I was really, really glad to see the general assembly move on that. Uh, you know, there are so many people in the Commonwealth. I mean, you know, you even have like governor Northam going out once a year and doing these dental clinics for people, you know what I mean? And, and if that's not just a perfect example of, of how, um, poor some of the access to health services are, in uh in in rural parts of the country or in the country the commonwealth you know it's well all over the country really right yeah but here in virginia especially um um you know it's 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 really really important that we are going to be able to um, give those people the ability to just talk to their doctors talk to nurses um either over by telephone or by virtual services yeah and that all that all shows the importance of good high quality internet available to as many people as right. possible and it's going to go absolutely. a long way to addressing the health inequities that we have in this country yeah you know, absolutely improving access is always a good thing you know i mean here in virginia it's it's an ongoing process right the the democrats uh once they started really winning um seats in the general assembly in a big way in 2017 they were able to negotiate with the republicans who were then in control of the general assembly to um to expand medicaid and that expansion, you know, provided healthcare access to 500,000 Virginians who didn't previously have it, you know, and, and Medicaid, I have family on Medicaid. So I know how life-changing um, having that ability to go see a doctor without really, really worrying about the cost can be, is really for, for people who are struggling day in and day out just to feed themselves um, or pay the rent or the mortgage or whatever it is. Um, and so it's it's an this is all an ongoing process um, of expanding healthcare access to as many Virginians as we possibly can. Um, and like I said, you know, having a pandemic definitely um, brings that sense of urgency to bear. But um, I think there's there's a lot more that we can do, and and will continue to be done moving forward too. I, I love to hear that. Uh, let, let's switch gears for a second, though. I want to talk about the law that passed that probably got the most headlines this year, and that's legalizing marijuana. You know, oh, what's, yeah. this, you know, what's this new law look like? You know, as a Virginian, what should I look forward to or prepare for? Tell me a little bit about the new marijuana law. Well, first things first, uh, you know, as most people know, um, we are going to finally, finally uh, be able to uh, – legally possess cannabis products um, starting July 1st of this year, 2021. Uh, you know, this, this was a bill uh, that definitely took a lot of negotiation, um, but uh, was a priority of the Democratic caucus coming into, coming into the session this year. This is something that Virginians have been clamoring for for a while. And, and as you can tell, you know, something that people around the country are really, really starting to to change their minds on. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a huge success for us to be able, I mean, Virginia, I think is the first state in the South 
to um, have finally, finally legalized marijuana for uh, for recreational use. And that is, again, we just had this conversation about, um, you know, how, how quickly Virginia is, is moving forward and how it's uh, really acting as sort of like the vanguard on, on many of these different progressive issues. And marijuana legalization is definitely, definitely uh, right there at the top. Um, so to get, I mean, I guess to get into a few more specifics about the bill, like I said, starting July 21st, excuse me, July 1st, um, adults who are 21 years of age or older will be able to possess up to a certain amount. I think it's one ounce of uh, marijuana. Uh, the bill also creates a Virginia Cannabis Control Authority. Um, if you're from Virginia, you're probably familiar with our Alcohol Beverage Control Authority, um, something that uh, uh college students the entire commonwealth over loathe and despise with a fiery passion <laughs> but uh you know we, we have an interesting structure here and and so the legislature had to consider what were they going to do were they going to um subsume cannabis regulatory authority under that same uh, uh department or were they going to have to create a new uh, structure in order to do that. And ultimately, they decided that the best way forward was to create an independent body that would specifically focus on those regulations. Because, uh, you know, the cannabis industry is new. It's gradually or it's rapidly, rapidly uh, growing. Um, and so you do need I think you need you need people who are specifically focused on that industry. Um, and clearly, the General Assembly thought the same. And so this yeah. Virginia Cannabis Control Authority will be getting started. I, I believe also comes into effect um, July 1st is when they'll really, really start um, getting folks hired and getting the agency together and, and running. And then it's going to take them, um, you know, up until about 2024. So technically sales of uh, wholesale and retail sales of, of marijuana will be legal, but not until January 1st, 2024. So Virginia will be in kind of a, um, sort of a DC status for people who are familiar with the situation in DC, where it will be legal to possess it, uh, marijuana that is, uh, but it will technically not be legal to purchase or sell uh, marijuana until 2024. And that's, you know, primarily because the General Assembly felt that this new Virginia Cannabis Control Authority was going to need time to uh, set up these regulations and really set up a system that, um, you know, that could function and, and, be regulated <laughs> yeah i mean that it, that's important thing. in the cannabis control authority you know they're going to be in charge of things like licensing and you know creating rules and regulations around how the industry right. should operate you know but there's a lot that in the statute when i was looking through it seems pretty prescriptive that you know i think some states when they legalized and created the kind of regulatory bodies allowed the regulators to have some more flexibility and one of those things i noticed is this one million dollar fee uh, mm -hmm. for what's called vertical integration, basically meaning that if you cultivate and you grow your product under the R system, you're not allowed to sell it directly to the consumer unless you pay this $1 million mm -hmm. fee and are also an existing medical cannabis operator. You know, that $1 million fee seems really high and it's going to keep out a lot of small businesses from operating. You know, um, what can this authority do to make, either lower that fee for some... Uh, small businesses that are up and coming or, or make it more small business friendly. Cause look, as a Virginian, I don't want to see three companies just dominate this market and decide what right. kind of product right. that we get. You know, I believe in competition. Uh, you know, I want as many as is reasonable to compete and make the best product, the safest product. 
you know, what, what authorities does this cannabis board have to help small businesses? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, when it comes to the specific fee, um, you know, I, I think that is enshrined in the law there. And, and my understanding that when it comes to that fee is that, that, that those funds are supposed to go into um, another part of what the law created, which is some of these um, cannabis equity programs. And uh, this was a huge part of the discussion that the legislators were having as they were trying to figure out how this legalization of marijuana was going to take place in the Commonwealth. You know, we, we wanted to certainly finally get rid of this, this um, failed war on drugs, you know, prohibition that was um, targeting communities of color and targeting uh, low income people, you know, the types of people who disproportionately do get arrested for marijuana crimes. Um, but at the same time, we wanted to make sure that we did it right. And that means taking a, a very serious um, you know, look at these policies through an equity lens and through a social and racial justice lens. Um, so, you know, in, in this law that was created, they, they went out of their way to um, include kind of a number of social provisions, provisions that would make it easier to, um, or provide prevent, you know, preferential access to licenses for people who'd been convicted of marijuana related crimes, for example. Um, but in addition to that, there's also going to be, um, you know, other provisions for, um, again, trying to reinvest some of that money back into the communities that have been disproportionately harmed um, by our decades and decades of, of, you know, punitive enforcement there. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's something that very much needs to be discussed moving forward. I think you've got the right questions when it comes to how is it going to affect the economy of this new industry? Um, you know, the general assembly, um, you know, their, their intention is not to create a system that is just going to keep people out. I think it's exactly the opposite. Right. Um, and you know, there are States around the country that mandate vertical integration. Um, and that was something that I think our state was initially, um, looking at or at least some of the provisions of the bills we're initially looking at but um it didn't uh, end up that way and my hope is that um you know with some of the some of the negotiations that were taking place and the compromises that were reached there that you know uh the small business industry will be able to come into this uh come into this can cannabis legalization with uh, hopefully with uh, the wind at their backs rather than right. finding, you know, obstacles. But like I said, it's, it's a conversation that is still taking place. I think that the general assembly will um, definitely, uh, you know, the, the book has not closed on this, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. So well, that's it's, great. Yeah. I mean, that, that's great that it's, you know, especially as we come up to a longer session where there aren't these bill limits that we have that we, you know, we can actually spend the time to have, the deeper conversations about, you know, what should the market look like come 2024? You know, it's not too late to, to uh, promote small businesses uh, to be prepared for 2024 once the board starts allowing the legal sale of, of cannabis products. You know, because the other thing that I think that we should really talk about uh, is the health implications of a, you know, a new market, especially around mm -hmm. things like, you know, pesticides. And, you know, if, if Virginia is going to allow uh, outdoor grow operations, you know, there's a lot of risk for pesticides to cross contaminate from, you know, other, yeah. you know, nearby fields. And, you know, these pesticides may be fine to consume by food, but if you ignite them, you know, and, and inhale, like they could be really dangerous. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, is Virginia going to do any kind of pesticide testing or, or make any kind of regulations around the kinds of chemicals and the pro, uh, you know, additives that come into this product? Oh, you know, I, I think that will be a big part of what the Virginia Cannabis Control Authority is um, is going to be focused on. Right. I mean, when once they begin to set up regulations for this industry, that will certainly be something that they consider. I mean, as it stands now, too, we, we do have a. Um, an existing industry of uh, hemp products. Um, and the, the Commonwealth of Virginia does allow pesticides to be used on those products um, only in cases of uh, infestations that could potentially ruin the entire crop, right? Mm-hmm. And so there is a, uh, an existing precedent for the use of pesticides on, on certain related crops, um, that being said, I think you've got a very, very good point that there is a very big difference in how these crops are now going to be used, at least, uh, you know, in a legal respect. And so, um, we're going to have to be very, very considerate with how we, we allow these pesticides to be used on, on crops that are going to end you know, end up being smoked. Um, yeah. and so it's that, that's definitely a conversation that's going to be had. And once this Virginia Cannabis Control Authority can get up off the ground, I think that'll be something that uh, they'll be having a lot of conversations about. That'd be that's great to hear because you know honestly, if we don't address that kind of concern, we're approaching a big tobacco moment. You know, when everyone's yeah. going to wake up and realize, oh crap, this product isn't safe. You know, this product is causing problems. You know, we can address that now. We know where the pitfalls are, and so it's good to hear that this this will be a top priority for the um, control board. Yeah. And so, uh, to, you know, just to just to jump into, you know, th- this is why it is so important for us to have legalized marijuana. Right. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think uh, most people will remember the scare from a year ago, two years ago, where people were vaping all these different products. And then all of a sudden uh, you had young people all over the country reporting all these different complicated health issues. Uh, and all of a sudden. Right. You had this huge, huge. Uh, backlash against these products and and people really really being terrified about what was in them and that's why you need a regulated industry you need a body uh, like the virginia cannabis control authority um, to ensure that you do have you know government eyes on some of this stuff um, so that if people are putting it in their bodies they're not uh, you know going out of their way to accidentally harm themselves yeah, no, I, that's really well put, and uh, I look forward to seeing what the session does this year on this issue. Uh, but I, you know, we're starting to run out of a little bit of time here. But I, I'd be remiss if I didn't give you enough time to talk about the LGBTQ advisory board that was just set up. You know, my understanding is this board is a first of its kind in the states. You know, let alone the South. Personally, it's really exciting to see a committee that would advise lawmakers on some of the economics and the cultural and educational elements facing LGBTQ Virginians. Uh, what went into establishing this board? What do you expect to come from it? You know, tell me more about your thoughts on you know this exciting new chapter of uh, Virginia politics. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This this really was one of the most exciting things that we got done this this past year. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, Virginia does have a um, a number of these statewide advisory boards. Uh, these are are dedicated to particular um, communities, constituencies of people um, who do live in Virginia, have historically lived in Virginia, but who have historically not been 
invited to participate in a big way in the political process, right? Either through discrimination, you know, legal or, or um, uh, uh, informal, um, or just through, you know, not having really had the ability to, uh, to get out there and engage themselves in the process. And so uh, what uh, we've done is we followed the lead of the uh, Virginia Latino Advisory Board, the Virginia Asian American and Pacific Islander Advisory Board, and the newly created Virginia um, African American Advisory Board, um, and uh, introduced a law this past session that creates the Virginia LGBTQ plus Advisory Board. It is the first um, statewide body of its kind in the South, at least, if not the entire country. I did talk with um, a journalist with NBC News who had been doing some research and said, you know, there are there are some um, equivalent uh, bodies in in other states, but um, nothing quite like this. And uh, and so this is a really really exciting opportunity. What this board will do is um, it will be composed of about 21 members. Um, I think about 15 or 16 of them who have to be appointed by the governor, and. Um, those people have to identify as, as LGBTQ plus. And that means that moving forward, no matter who the governor is, no matter what the legislature is composed of, you know, who is in the majority, there will be a statewide Virginia government sanctioned body of Virginia residents who, um, who will come from, this huge and diverse community, right? The LGBTQ plus community. Um, and they will have a role in uh, reviewing uh, policy legislation um, that affects the LGBTQ community, uh, but also in going out into the community, soliciting opinions and thoughts and needs and concerns, uh, and then translating those back to the state government. And so what this really, really means is that for the first time, in Virginia history, in Southern American history, and potentially for the first time in the United States, queer Virginians are going to have a designated seat at the table of government. And that is, you know, as a queer Virginian, that's just a sea change, right? In the way yeah. that our country and in our state have treated people like me. Um, you know, when I was born, there were states in this country where same-sex physical relationships were criminalized. And that was perfectly fine and legal. Um, and it took until 2003 with the Lawrence v. Texas case, uh, I hope I'm getting that right, you know, where the Supreme Court finally struck down those laws. I was 10 years old. So this is not ancient history. You know, it's it's not ancient history that um, the United States of America was not exactly the friendliest place in the world to be if you were a sexual or a gender minority. And um, so to, to see this kind of change happening here in Virginia um, is, it's, it really, really makes me optimistic. And it, again, it's just, it's part of that of that potential that I think that we not only in Virginia have, but that people, progressives, uh, or just like-minded individuals all over the country have to make real concerted change in their own communities. Um, you know, you start at the bottom and you just 
work your way up. You fight and you organize and you do it community by community until you can build a coalition of people who, who uh, support your values and, um, and just support the idea of a more inclusive and accepting society. Um, and you can make real, real change happen. And like I said, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who is in control of Virginia down the line. You know, Virginia is, is like any other state, right? Eventually, we will elect Republicans again, whether it be in the governor seat or uh, in the General Assembly. And, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what kind of Republicans they are. At the end of the day, we will have this body and LGBTQ Virginians will have a seat at the table. So that's huge. That is absolutely huge. Uh, and especially when you say, you know, it less than 20 years ago you know this it was criminal to be lgbtq mm -hmm. and and now to be able to influence the those kinds of policies is a is a remarkable thing and a really quick uh evolution and you know especially in virginian politics um i, I love to hear that and, and thank you so much for the work that you've done on that on that important issue uh, but as we look forward to next year, you know, you guys accomplish a lot, but I know that there's a lot more you want to accomplish. What's in store for oh, next yeah. session? What do you hope to get done? Let us know. Well, um, we did uh, uh, just get out of our primary. So <laughs> we've got a lot, uh, you know, we got a lot of time that we'll need to, uh, to take in order to con really consider what our uh, agenda is going to be for the coming year. But I know Delegate Lopez is really, really, really strongly focused on strengthening worker protections. That's something that, you know, when we were going around the district and talking to people, that's something that people brought up a lot. And I think the COVID um, pandemic made it really clear just how fragile people's employment situations can be. Um, and, you know, not to mention their housing situations and everything else. But, um, and so that's that's something that we will uh, be very, very focused on. Um, on top of that, Delegate Lopez is probably the biggest environmentalist I have ever met in my life. Mm -hmm. uh, he has taught me a lot about uh, progressive environmental policy. And, um, and just this past year, actually, he passed a huge, huge bill um, that's going to allocate $800 million to cleaning up the Chesapeake Bay. Um, but like you said, it's the work is not over yet. So we definitely will have more on strengthening environmental safeguards um, uh, coming up. Uh, something that he's been focused on for many years is cleaning up our drinking water. Um, you know, a lot of people don't know that there are communities in Virginia where you should not drink the water if you're scared about lead contamination. You know, we're not at Flint, Michigan levels, but it is uh, there are definitely communities in Virginia where the the amount of lead in your water is much higher than the epa recommends and so that's something that we're going to be really really focused on and in addition to that you know i said um you know people during the pandemic realized that their that their employment situations were really fragile same thing with housing you know we we're definitely going to have to take a real strong look at some of our you know how virginia really protects uh tenants and, and renters and um you know we are not necessarily a state that uh <laughs> that has always had uh, their best interests at heart and so that's something that we're we will be taking a really close look at and then finally um we are in an ongoing process of realizing um what kind of of real equity reforms and criminal justice reforms we need here in the commonwealth we've made some really really fantastic strides like you said with 
um, with eliminating capital punishment. I mean, Virginia in its 400 year history, 400 plus year history has executed more of its residents and citizens than any other state in the United States. And now it's gone, you know, and, and, and all it takes is all it takes as if it's just a, you know, small thing, but all it takes is, you know, passing some legislation and the signing of a governor's pen and, and we will never execute another person in the Commonwealth of Virginia ever again. You know, and so that's a huge sea change, but we got a lot more to do. Um, and I can guarantee you that, uh, you know, the Democratic caucus, that's one of their top priorities is figuring out how to continue to make Virginia a place that, you know, as as Delegate Lopez says, lifts everybody up and leaves nobody behind. That's that's great. And thank you so much for all you've done for the Commonwealth, the uh, 49th District. I mean, it's been a it's been a pleasure, you know, working with you on on some of these issues and. Uh, I look forward to working with you again ne- next session. And, you know, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Uh, Kevin Salcedo Broach, everyone, Chief of Staff to Whip Lo- Alfonso Lopez from uh, Virginia 49. Uh, Kevin, th- thanks again. Uh, hope to talk soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Brian. It's my pleasure being here. And uh, thank you for all the work that you do. You've been listening to the Good Friend Group podcast. Special thanks to my colleagues, Brian Hess and Earl Ash. Please subscribe and share with family and friends. And of course, thanks for listening. See you next time.